0: how do we solve those potential over-crediting issues? They might only remove 20,000 tons a year and they're crediting 100,000 tons a year.
1: Greetings, Earthlings, and welcome back to our podcast, the show that strives to give you greater confidence that the future we're all hurtling toward isn't totally doomed. Today's episode is the second in a series on carbon markets, We're spotlighting a company that's taken an innovative approach to reducing the well-known risks around purchasing carbon credits to offset emissions. But before we get there, I'm your host, Lisa Ann Pinkerton. I spend my days supporting climate tech startups in gaining the media attention they deserve with Technica Communications. And my two hobbies are this podcast and leading women in clean tech and sustainability. If you're enjoying this little hobby of mine, I encourage you to go to our Patreon page to support the show and the wonderful production staff we have to make it all happen. You can also follow us on social media and log a review of what you think of the show on your podcast app. Now, for a short message from our supporters at the Resource Labs Network. In our first episode on carbon markets, we covered how these markets exist to fill the gaps around carbon policy initiatives and regulations and how there's some real credibility issues within these markets. In fact, it's pretty common for corporations to buy credits from brokers and then end up finding out later that the credits they bought were totally bogus. No way! Yes way, dude! No way! (laughs) Or they've not lived up to their full carbon potential whatsoever. So, today's guest is from a company that's aiming to change all of that. His name is Steve Boyle, and he started out his career at JP Morgan and Citibank before transitioning to the climate tech industry with his current company, Rubicon Carbon. There, he's the VP head of West Sales, and he supports enterprise companies to engage with carbon markets in a trusted way.
0: A lot of what's available now, and specifically some of the areas that Rubicon focuses on, um, are nature-based solutions. So think about a forest, and uh, that forest has an economic value from its timber. And the carbon markets are designed to say, well, that forest should have some other economic value, and that's to actually take and sequester carbon out of the atmosphere. So nature-based solutions are one of the most common uh, carbon offsets and carbon projects that are that are available currently, and there are also industrial uh, decarbonization solutions. So think about projects that might uh, be paid to fix a leaky methane pipeline, or projects that are around to capture gas uh, from uh, landfills, methane that's being released from landfills, and to convert that into electricity, or projects or that are around uh, actually capturing uh, CO2 emissions from industrial plants, and being able to take that instead of It being released in the atmosphere, take that carbon, sequester it, and store it permanently underground. So these are a lot of the projects that are available today and continuing to be developed going forward. I mean, we can talk ad nauseum about, uh, call it biochar projects or direct air capture, enhanced rock weathering, oceanic carbon sequestration. I mean, the list really goes on and on. But uh, for the purposes of this conversation, I think that we can keep it to more avoidance offsets. So projects that are Uh, effectively helping to continue to remove carbon from the atmosphere and store them, uh, as well as more permanent removal types of offsets, which are projects that are set up to actually take carbon out of the atmosphere and keep them stored for a very long period of time. Mm
1: -hmm, mm -hmm. Thank you, Steve. I appreciate that. Very thorough. Um, Speaking of some of these nature-based carbon credits... Just this year, the Guardian published this explosive article accusing Vera, which is one of the world's premier certifiers of carbon credits. Um, they were accused of grossly overstating their emissions reductions associated with quote unquote, avoided deforestation credits, which are nature based credits. And um, what I was reading was that the investigation claimed that only 6% of Vera's avoided deforestation credits represented real emissions reductions and then the ceo uh, eventually stepped down through all of this and there were many more articles and you know it's just it really it really took on a life of its own in this industry so this isn't the first time that something like this has happened but this is the most recent uh event can you tell us a little bit about what happened here yeah, absolutely. Um happy happy to speak
0: on that. And I think you hit, hit the nail on the head that this isn't the only article that's ever come out about some of the problems associated with the carbon markets. The problems, to be frank, are actually very well known. Uh, specifically, when you look at nature-based uh, projects, there actually is no perfect methodology for actually being able to capture the amount of carbon that is being removed by a forest and sequestered in that forest every year, because you actually have to prove something called the counterfactual meaning if this project didn't exist if we uh had not avoided deforestation in this area would deforestation have actually happened so that isn't you know a 100 percent scientific you know account on a credit for credit basis what actually could have happened in that scenario so i would say that the problems uh overall in the market highlighted by that article highlighted by i'm sure we've seen the john oliver episode on carbon credits there have been many articles written about the issues in the carbon markets Uh, have actually highlighted things that are already well known. And that's really why companies like Rubicon uh, are around in order to say, well, these problems are known. And how do we take steps to solve that? Because to be frank, when things like this happen, you might have sustainability teams or people who are trying to involve themselves in the carbon markets or trying to find ways to decarbonize their value chain. They say, well, I'm not going to utilize this. I'm going to say, well, Instead of engaging in that market, I'm going to wait five years. I'm going to wait 10 years. That'll sort itself out. I'm going to focus on my own decarbonization. And we just don't have time for that, to be perfectly frank. So if we don't focus on all of the ways that we can actually engage the market today to support these much needed projects, protecting rainforests, protecting natural environments and habitats and ecosystems, then those won't be around in five, 10 years especially when in five, 10 years, we're going to need those markets. We're going to need those projects to be around to help us to continue to sequester and remove carbon from the atmosphere going forward. Because the only way that we're going to hit our global 2050 targets are if we focus on all of the solutions, all of the nature-based, all of the industrial, all of the removal solutions, so we can put ourselves on the best path to reach you know 1.5 degrees by 2050, which Right now, I think, depending upon who you ask, we're not necessarily on the right path today.
1: Well, yeah, and especially if you've listened to our Life at 3C episode listeners, um, you would know that I subscribe to the fact that we are not on the right path. And uh, we have uh, a little bit of catching up to do, to be gentle uh, with that. Yes. Steve, uh, this is a natural segue into Rubicon Carbon. What are you guys doing differently to help us avoid situations like Vera in the future?
0: The idea for, for Rubicon actually started back in October, November of 2021. And historically inside of the carbon markets, how have they worked? Well, I kind of like to equate it to stockbroking of the 1980s. Let's say you're a two or three person sustainability team at company X. And you want to engage in the voluntary carbon markets. You want to do your part. You want to help support much needed projects, but you don't know where to go. So you call up your local broker. Your local broker gives you the few projects that they have on hand, the inventory that's available, and you yourself have to choose, what do I want to buy? So really what Rubicon was set up to do was to create that process more seamless and transparent and to help reduce the risks associated with the market today. You need to be doing diligence on these projects. You need to be understanding what their impact is. And as a two or three person sustainability team, you likely don't have the time to do it because... Step one for every company, and this is agreed upon uh, virtually everywhere, step one is decarbonizing your own value chain. That's what you should be focused on, right? And when you need to engage in the voluntary carbon market, you need to have a partner. And that's how Rubicon Carbon was set up. We were set up to be the partner for companies who know they need to engage in the voluntary carbon market, would like to engage, but don't necessarily know how. So we came to market with a product called the Rubicon Carbon Type. We're providing an avenue and a vehicle for companies to gain diversified and risk mitigated exposure to carbon projects across the world. And we do so in a few different areas. So nature-based solutions, we have a nature-based uh, avoided emissions Rubicon carbon tone. We have an industrial avoided emissions Rubicon carbon ton. We're actually building our carbon removal Rubicon carbon ton. It's a very nascent market, but we're building these areas for companies to gain access. So what does that do? right how why is that helpful for the market well again i think i spoke about this earlier but when you think about the supply and the amount of projects available today we it, it it isn't a massive market to say the least right it's estimated 1 to 2 billion dollars uh, from from a market cap perspective there are probably you know call it 500 700,000 or sorry 500 to 700 million tons of available credits sort of floating around there today in different vintages But the estimated global demand is much, much higher, and it will be going into 2030, 2040, 2050. So there doesn't need to be another person in the market saying, we have high-quality credits, we can get you this, we can get you that. There needs to be a solution to direct capital from private enterprise to the carbon markets, and we do that through another part of our business called Rubicon Carbon Capital. So this actually takes money. It takes that $300 million of equity investment that we received from TPG when we were initially incubated and it puts towards the market. And it says, let's invest in project X, Project Y, Project Z. So that those projects are around when more companies need to engage the market. More companies need to buy carbon credits in 2030, 2040, and 2050. And one of the things that I'll that I'll say in addition to what we're doing, a lot of companies will talk about the fact that they have high-quality credits, and they have an MRV approach. We have a science team. We have a portfolio management team. We have a supply team that manages the quality of the credits. We have our own MRV process. Uh, We're coming out publicly with a Rubicon carbon standard shortly. Um, And we also have a patent-pending process to deal with, actually, some of the issues in the market. It's not enough to just say we have high-quality credits. It's to say, well, there are issues with, let's say, nature-based emissions reductions carbon credits, how do we solve those issues how do we solve those potential overcrediting issues a lot of the issues that you may have seen in that specific article that you referenced are that some of these are overcredited by a massive amount they might only remove 20,000 tons a year and they're crediting 100,000 tons a year well rubicon addresses that by through through actually their own patent pending process uh, to actually take into account what those overcrediting issues are and to also retire additional credits on behalf of no one so that's to support the high quality nature of the Rubicon carbon portfolios in the market today.
1: I'm glad you mentioned high quality because that was one of the questions I was going to ask you. Um, uh, You know, you were mentioning the three-person sustainability team. They might not have the expertise to do the due diligence. And I'm thinking, well, they might not even have the availability to go check out. Like some of these projects, I would assume you need to check them out on the ground or you need to check in with them on the ground. You need to physically be there to ensure... That what they say they're doing, they're actually doing. Is that correct? Absolutely. Um, so that's, I mean,
0: I mean, a multifaceted process, to be honest. But to give you an example of how we think about it, well, A, you have to have relationships with these people. That project in Kenya or the project in Cambodia, you have to know who the project developer is. You have to develop that sense of trust and understanding for what they do. And that's certainly the ground layer of what Rubicon does with all of the project developers that we partnered with, and the credits that we hold in our inventory. Something I actually didn't highlight in the in, in the initial overview for Rubicon is we're all also differentiated in the fact that we own 20 million tons of carbon credits. So we're not a broker, we're not a marketplace. We've actually gone out to these projects and we've done the due diligence, and we've spoken with the project developers, and we've read those PEDs and VVBs, the three letter acronyms that I that I referenced before, to understand why it's a high quality project. In addition. Um, What we're seeing now is that there are new and innovative ways to actually measure, report, and verify that the project is doing what they say they're going to do, right? And so that's either through geospatial satellite imagery, hyperspectral cameras either on the ground or in satellites to actually measure and monitor the fact that that leaky methane pipeline is being plugged that that forest uh, or that forest area that's being protected isn't actually being deforested, that there is additionality, that there's permanence associated with these projects. So all of those issues uh, are encapsulated inside of Rubicon Solution. But I would again say from a quality perspective, it's just not enough uh, to say, well, we have high quality, we have high MRV, we can track the forest loss. If you're invested in a specific project, you have singular level project risk. What happens if that forest burns down? What happens if there wasn't public information that the carbon finance that you were giving to this project was actually going to a corrupt government official? Well, that isn't good. But if you owned a single project, you have that risk. So being able to diversify that risk from a portfolio perspective is absolutely vital when we think about how do we invite companies back into the market today? How do we get them to say, well, I'm now comfortable supporting Project X or Project Y or 10 to 15 25 different projects that they're able to scale their impact
1: yeah yeah I, I'm really interested in what you guys are doing because it seems like you're like you're bringing confidence back into a market that has had a real hard time with its reputation and credibility and validity all these things that we you know Talk about from a marketing and PR perspective. And when you're going out and like working with startups and getting investors and that kind of thing, those are the three things you got to present. And the same is true with these voluntary carbon markets and corporations looking, they, they not only want to make sure that they're spending, um, their money on, on high quality credits, but they also need to report back to their board and their shareholders and stakeholders and the public, right? We're starting to see uh, some corporations wanting to go quiet about the the wonderful initiatives that they're putting out there because they're concerned about any kind of backlash that might happen if something might go wrong right it's called green hushing right we used to we have greenwashing and now we have green hushing green hushing yes it's a, it's a new term but yes it's a brand new term yeah uh so my question for you is uh what? Who are some of the customers that you're working with now that are are f- are finding greater confidence and confidence in the voluntary markets through Rubicon's program?
0: Sure. So let me start that question by actually framing who Rubicon serves in this market and really why do we exist. Well, there are what I like to call the tip of the spear companies in the market. These are the Microsofts of the world, the Stripes, you know, the Apples, the Amazons, the WalMarts, the Massive companies that have large sustainability teams that are doing absolutely terrific things from a sustainability perspective, absolutely terrific things from a decarbonization perspective. And they are the leaders of the pack. And they are big enough and they have the sustainability teams to talk directly with a project developer, to do project finance, to do forward offtake agreements. We don't need to go into a lot of the technical jargon, but that's what I like to call one to 2% of companies in the world today. How does the other 98% of companies actually access this market. So the companies that we serve is certainly the 98% of companies in the market today that are saying, we need to do something, we want to do something. And a lot of them are sitting on the sidelines, but bit by bit, we're starting to invite them back into the market. We're trying to create that easy process for them to say, well, if I want to work and utilize carbon credits, if I'm going to utilize the voluntary carbon market, how do I do so in a risk mitigated way? And that is the Rubicon card in time. Um, the last thing I'll say there as well is we even work with the tip of the spear companies because a lot of these companies, if you're trying to work with 15 different project developers and you want to create, let's say, a diversified basket, well, you're onboarding KYC AML requirements. Again, more three-letter acronyms, know your client, anti-money laundering. We don't need to get into that, but there are a lot of internal processes that you need to do to diligence those people. You don't have the time to do that, right? Even if you have a 10 or 15 person sustainability team, it might be easier to be comfortable with a partner who has a fully fleshed out decarbonization due diligence process and solution that you can say, when I want to buy high quality offsets inside of removals or nature-based, I know I can go to this portfolio approach. I can go to the Rubicon Carbon Time. I can purchase or retire that asset and meet my carbon offset. But in terms of the actual companies that we cover, I mean, it's 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 all across the gamut. Inside of our uh, distribution organization, we're cover- our coverage is specifically industry aligned. So I specifically look after you know some more of the higher emitting industries like industrials or materials and some professional services and financial services companies. We cover travel, we cover airlines, we cover uh, real estate. I mean, if you look at our launch coalition. Uh, You know, made up of financial services companies like JP Morgan and Bank of America, TD and SNBC, travel companies, JetBlue and Hertz. Um, We have industrial companies, GE, Dow, Honeywell. I mean, the list goes on and on. And it's really to showcase that Rubicon doesn't just service one client. We don't service the travel industry and that's it. Right. We say every company needs decarbonization solutions. Every company will need the voluntary carbon market. Right. How are we going to make it easier for all of them? to engage and interact with that market trust in a trusted and seamless way.
1: So we're hearing a lot of like companies, servicing these companies, uh, basically an enterprise level, corporate level. Do you anticipate in the future this platform being opened up to um, smaller players, individuals, anything like that?
0: Absolutely. I mean, that's really what Rubicon's trying to trying to create because in order for this market to succeed – you need that information to be transparent. You highlighted actually on your previous question, if you look at a company nowadays and you think that you are uh, uh, might get convicted in the court of public opinion, I say, of greenwashing, well, now you're greenhushed. And even if you're actually supporting three different high-quality projects, you might put in your sustainability report, and we buy carbon offsets, or and we support these types of projects, and you're worried that someone's going to call you out for greenwashing. Right? If you don't have the ability or you don't have the team to actually put out a sustainability report that says, these are the 25 projects that we're supporting, and here's why. If you don't have the why there for an investor, for a client, for an employee, a shareholder, stakeholder, regulator, auditor, right? there are a lot of people that are going to look at your company and say, what are you doing and why? And that's all part of Rubicon's solution. So I haven't spoken about this, but we have an underlying technology layer you are product that allows companies to seamlessly purchase, manage, retire, and ultimately, and this is the biggest one, report on what they're doing inside of the carbon market, right? So they'll be able to see all of the projects that are inside of a Rubicon carbon ton. When they go to retire, they have a retirement report that has their vintages, the serial numbers, the confirmation from the registry. And again, most importantly, the why, the points about every specific project on why is this additional. Why is this project permanent? What are some of the additional co-benefits associated with that project? You need to be able to take that story frame it, and be able to show it because that's the only way you're going to get more people engaged in the market. So that goes from the largest company in the world to the smallest company in the world and then ultimately needs to reach the consumer and needs to reach the end client. And so this is where we think about different types of business to business to the consumer or customer called b 2 b to c solutions where we say, how do we offer Rubicon carbon tons to them? where they say, I want to make an impact. I've purchased this flight. I want to offset my emissions. How do I do so in a trusted and seamless way? I've uh, booked this rental car. I know there are emissions associated with it. I I couldn't get an EV because there aren't chargers in my area, but I still want to do good, right? How do you start to enact that change, right? It starts with the enterprise, but then it's also saying, how do we bring this to the consumer? And that's certainly something that we're focused on as well. But again, it all starts with transparency. How do you give them the why? Why are you doing this, and why is this important?
1: Yeah, absolutely, and and I can see, I can certainly see the um, the the need and appeal for encouraging more people to use the voluntary carbon markets and bringing greater confidence and reducing the risk related to that. Uh, if we're going to meet our goals and turn back the tide of climate change that's coming, and there are some people out there that'll say. Um, you know, the market-based approaches, they take too long. It's too fragmented. It's not enough. And we just need to require companies to do this as a policy. What, what's obviously I know that you're on the side of market-based solutions, but what would you say to folks who, who are advocating for more of a, a policy-centered approach here?
0: Well, I think policy can take shape in a multitude of ways. So first, we can just speak highly about the compliance market. So there are compliance markets in the EU. Uh, I believe Japan is setting up a compliance market. Uh, California uh, in the US has its own cap and trade program. There's a Northeast Alliance of 10 states. Washington just set up their compliance program. And these programs are aimed at emissions reductions, but they also have a markets component inside. So it's technically, it's called cap and trade. So there's a cap on the amount of emissions a company in, in that state is allowed to emit. If you emit over the cap, then you need to buy carbon credits from a company who's emitted under the cap. And if you emit under the cap, then you can sell those, right? So that's still a markets-based ap- approach, but it's important because it sets a cap on, that, uh, on, on, on the total emissions that any company can emit, and that decreases every year. So it means that most importantly, companies need to focus on decarbonizing their own value chain. The voluntary carbon market today doesn't have governmental uh, sort of organization around it. It's sort of, uh, I mean, a it's a market that's been uh, created for companies to be able to a interact, but do so on a on a voluntary basis, and it's really guided by NGOs. It's guided by a lot of media opinions, right? There are a lot of things that help form that market, but really what we're seeing with the likes of SBTI, and specifically their third pillar of Beyond Value Chain Mitigation, uh, the ICBCM, BCMI. I get, I'm, I, I'm listing tons of acronyms because there are a lot, but it's really saying, how do we start to standardize what quality looks like in the market? And how do we help companies align to what they should be doing in that market today? So really where I see the voluntary market today, in two to three years' time, it could look somewhat like a pre-compliance market. Where governments, where governmental bodies in countries or states or uh, uh, different, different parts of the world might say, you, sh- you need to be decarbonizing your value chain. That's step one. And we require you to engage in the voluntary carbon market by utilizing these standards or you know, X standards or Y standards. The ICBCM's core carbon principles is, is, is a great example of that. And now you start to say, well, that market starts to look more like a pre-compliance market where it doesn't have one centralized world agency that is saying, this is what you need to do and this is the only way that you can do it. There's still some flexibility there, but it's more saying companies around the world need to be focused on decarbonization and supporting these projects. So I certainly think that both a markets-based approach and additional regulation can be helpful in helping companies actually hit the targets that they're setting. Because to be frank, uh, and I don't want to call out some of those four-letter organizations I said before, but you might be able to set a target with some of those four-letter organizations and set that target today and say, I want to reduce by 2030 and then hit this net zero by 2050. Five years goes by, oops, I missed my target. All right, we'll set a new one, right? That doesn't solve any problems, right? What solves problems is true decarbonization solutions for your own value chain today and supporting necessary voluntary carbon projects that are around and removing carbon from the atmosphere. And one thing I wanted to point out that I actually didn't say before, but I think this is really helpful for listeners to frame the problem at hand. And it's helpful for companies. It's helpful for, to be honest, naysayers of climate change. But when you think about global warming, it's it's obviously scientifically proven that the planet is warming, right? And I like to equate that to the human body. So a lot of Americans, they don't understand what 1.5 degrees is but that's about 2.6 degrees Fahrenheit. So think about your standard body temperature being 98.6. What happens when you increase your body temperature to 101.2, or 1.5 degrees Celsius from, oh, I'm not aware of the Celsius conversion. I think that's 37 to 38 and a half, but don't quote me on that.
1: (laughs) You're braver than I am with the conversions.
0: (laughs) If you're running a 101.2 fever, right? Something's wrong. If you look at the world, and we get to 1.5 degrees Celsius increase, a 2.6 degree Fahrenheit increase, something's wrong. You have a fever. It's trying to correct itself. And that problem exists. And that's the way we can tactically say, well, if we're at 1.1 or 1.2 right now, we're already running over 100. There's a problem. There's something that needs to change. And we need to utilize all of the resources and tools available at our disposal today to help combat that. And that's a combination of decarbonizing value chains and utilizing the voluntary carbon markets.
1: Earthlings, what a great analogy for the climate crisis. We are running a fever. And if this was our body, we would be treating it much differently than we are treating the global temperature rise as a society. 101 fever, you stay home. You change what you're doing to make sure that you get better. I love this analogy and I'm going to use it. So thank you, Steve, for sharing it with us. And thank you to Rubicon Carbon for bringing transparency to the voluntary carbon markets. It is not an easy feat. And what they're doing is sorely needed, especially when their solution opens up to support smaller businesses and even individuals in participating in these markets so keep your sensors pointed to rubicon carbon and we will see how their solutions develop before we go we have our restoring faith in humanity moment and it comes to us today from somalia one of the most dangerous countries in africa to be a journalist in fact more than 50 journalists have been killed since 2010. Despite the risks, Fathi Mohammed Ahmed launched the country's first all-women newsroom last year. Known as Balan Media, the news team has overcome prejudice to disseminate news on a variety of taboo subjects, such as puberty, the female drug epidemic, and women living with HIV. In a society where deeply patriarchal values are prevalent, Bahlon Media has become a household name in Somalia, and their stories are distributed internationally through places like The Guardian, the BBC, and the Toronto Star. Fathi and her news team are displaying a tremendous amount of courage, and we salute them. Thank you for joining us on the Earthlings 2.0 podcast. We'll see you again on another turn of this beautiful blue-green space flower we call home.